Needless to say, I am truly honored and humbled and overwhelmed by this uh, opportunity, grateful for our leaders for it as well. Uh, I've always said that I can't even believe that I'm in Acts 29, let alone addressing you this morning. That's not hyperbole. I've told some of the brothers in the North Atlantic region, I still remember my assessment. I remember 10 years ago sitting in front of Pastor Eric Mason and Doug Logan and Rob Burns, and, and you remember how nervous you are during your assessment. Like, you don't even remember basic things. They ask you things like, what's the gospel? And you go blank. Like, what is the gospel? <laughs> Somebody should have told me the gospel before I got here, right? Like, so you have no idea. So I'm in my assessment, and Eric Mason found out that he and I went to the same school. And I think that he thought that maybe that meant that we were intellectual peers or that I could hang with him. So he had gotten his doctoral degree. I just got a degree. And so during my assessment... He turns to me and goes, hey, I just got to ask you something. This is off to the side, but, you know, what's your favorite ancient manuscript? What do you use? And I was like, I mean, you, you can imagine how smart that brother is to even ask that kind of question, right? And, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I supposed to say to that? And, and I can feel my wife sitting next to me going, well, there goes 829. That was, that was a good shot, right? Maybe if you asked him what Netflix show was on. But I, I had, so I got to say something. And to this day, I don't know what I was supposed to say, like, Oh, I prefer Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus. Like, what was I supposed to answer? So, so I had to say something. So this is what I said. I literally said, um, Eric, uh, the really old ones. That's the ones that I prefer. <laughs> that came out of my mouth. What are the ancient manuscripts you prefer? The, the older, the better, I say. That's, that's, that was my answer. And they let me in the network. No conditions. I've always said that I think what happened is they went to a back room and they said, look, this guy's not bright, but he is Indian and we don't have a lot of those. So let's just let him in and see what happens, right? So that's how I'm before you this morning. I am genuinely honored and humbled. Our task for this morning is to pick up where Steve left off in 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 13. As you turn there, let me tell you something. I read a story some years ago about a swimmer named Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick had been the first woman to swim across the English Channel and back. And in 1952, she set out to be the first one to swim across the Pacific from the shore of the Catalina Islands to the shore of California. And so on a cold, foggy day in 1952, she stepped into the Pacific to swim. Beside her as she swam would be a rowboat, within it would be her mother, as well as some men with rifles to shoot away sharks. And so in icy cold, shark-infested waters, on a foggy day, she stepped into the Pacific and began her swim. Stride after stride, mile after mile, hour after hour. When nearly 16 hours of swimming had passed, they calculated to be 67 thousand strokes. Wearied and fatigued and worn out, she cried out to the boat beside her to pull her in. She couldn't do it anymore. And from within that boat, her mother called out to her saying, keep going. Don't quit. You're almost there. And she did for a bit longer. But eventually the fog proved to be too thick and too much. She could hardly see anything beside her, see nothing at all in front of her. And so she stopped. And it wasn't until she was pulled into the boat that she was told that she was less than half a mile away. The next day at a press conference, she had this quote. She said, all I could see was fog. I think if I could have just seen the shore, I would have made it. 
All I could see was fog. If I could have just seen the shore, I would have made it. Can you imagine coming so far and coming so close to, in the end, have come just short? I think of that because in the letter we're looking at this week and in the passage we're looking at this morning, it's as if the Apostle Paul were in a boat rowing beside his beloved child, his son in the faith, and he's screaming out to him at the top of his lungs, son, don't stop. Don't quit. Don't bail on Jesus or the ministry that Jesus has given to you because though you can't see it, you're almost there. On the other side of this fog is a shore. You see, Timothy at that point couldn't see anything. At this point, fog had rolled in over Timothy's eyes and he could hardly see anything beside him, see nothing at all in front of him. All he could see was fog. He couldn't see reality. And, and you and I can't blame him. You heard some of it yesterday. You know the background of the church that he was called to pastor and the city that he was called to pastor in. You know what pastoring in Ephesus would have looked like. Or a refresher in 1 Timothy would remind you that this young minister had hecklers and heretics to silence, troublemakers to deal with, quarrels to quelch. He had angry men and, and immodest women to pastor. He had rich folks who needed to be charged not to be haughty and taught to share. And all of that within the context of a congregation that tended to look down on him for his youth. And not to mention that chapter 1 closes by saying names that he would have known like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Names that you would imagine Timothy would have known, would have endured with him, lasted alongside him, have dropped out. And now the herd of men that he's been running with keeps thinning out so that Timothy looks beside and can't see anyone and can't see anything. And in the midst of all of that, all of that was within the pews. He hadn't even stepped out the church doors yet to step into a hostile world or a city that wanted nothing to do with the gospel or Jesus, or with an enemy that was always ready to take him out. You see, you can be sure that thick fog had rolled in, and the temptation to tap out and throw in the towel was at the forefront of this young minister's mind. Now, you can perhaps understand, maybe more than understand, you can relate. I know that I can. I know that I know what it's like within the quiet confines of my own heart or into the ears of a trusted friend to whisper, I can't do this anymore. In fact, I don't want to do this anymore. Where you look around and grass seems greener everywhere. Anything else, something else. And, and if there was a safe exit ramp to take, you'd take it. And if you've ever been there, I want you to know we're not alone. In fact, it happens to the best of us. Maybe that'll be an encouragement to you. Recently, Paul Tripp had come to an event, in an Acts 29 event in our region. And he told this story of one of his first pastors, maybe his first one. He's a young pastor. And he tells the story how he couldn't go on one more Sunday. Not hyperbole or exaggeration. He literally called up his elders and resigned. Couldn't handle it anymore. In fact, they went through all the way to the point of having a closing service for him. And they finished out his pastoral ministry. And he tells the story that as he was done with that service, he walked closed up the church, locked everything up, was standing on the church porch when an older gentleman came to him. And this older gentleman said to him, Paul, can I speak with you? And as he tells the story, he thought the last thing he wants to do is speak to anyone. He just wanted to run and be done, be doing something else, anything else, anywhere else. But to be polite, he said, sure, you can speak. And so this older man said, Paul, we know you're immature. 
Now you can imagine how that registered, right? (laughs) And Paul Tripp says, gee, thanks. And then he says, this older saint continues, we know you're immature, but if all the immature pastors run, the church of Jesus will never get the mature pastors she needs. And he went on to say, never underestimate the power of a single sentence to change your life. Needless to say, he unresigned and asked to be reinstated. And all the fruit that's been born from all the years since began with that moment with that elder saint on that porch. You see, at that moment, all he could see was fog. And he needed the words of an older saint to come to him and help him see a reality he couldn't see. That's where Timothy is. All he could see is fog. And so just then, the words of an older saint come in the form of a letter. And in it, he could hear his spiritual father screaming, Son, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't bail on Jesus or his mission. You're almost there. Here again how Paul said it. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 13. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Those are the words of Paul. Those are the words of God. Timothy needed them. We need them too. For in them, the Lord can remind us of our call and particularly even what it will take what it will look like, and what it's all for. The preacher in me can't resist a good alliteration, so I'll tell you it's the power for our call, a picture of our call, and the purpose of our call. If you ask what is our call, it's right there in verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is that sitting on death row in his presence though, with execution and the Roman sword soon coming to take his head off, his dying breath and concern is to see the gospel continuing to be spread out and passed down. That's his concern. That the task he leaves for Timothy is to take this baton that has been given to him and to pass it on to faithful men who will then pass it on to others as well. That's the task. And even in the language that's used here, you can see just how precious this gospel is. It's not just handed, it's entrusted. You entrust something of great value. And more than that, it's not just entrusted to anyone, it's entrusted to faithful men. This gospel of such value is to be entrusted to faithful men who will entrust it to faithful men, and on and on it will go. 
And you can hear this, it's sort of like what he said yesterday that we heard in 1 verse 14. If you remember, he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have been entrusted with the good deposit. Guard that. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Now, here's the question. How do you guard the gospel? Right? We started talking about that even yesterday. How do you guard the gospel? One person said it this way. If the gospel were jewels, then we'd know how to guard jewels. We'd put it in a safe under lock and key and hide it and make sure it never saw the light of day and never saw anyone or anything. How do you guard news? The way to keep news safe is to broadcast it everywhere to everyone. That's how you ensure that news is not lost. In fact, a gospel, no matter how orthodox, that is safely contained within the quiet confines of my heart isn't guarded. Because a guarded gospel is a proclaimed gospel, a scattered gospel, a gospel that's spread out and passed down. Therefore, when he's calling Timothy to invest himself into faithful men who will pour it out into others as well, that chain is the means by which he will guard the gospel. He'll guard the gospel by entrusting this gospel. So that means to the degree that we give ourselves to training others and training well and investing and raising leaders and planting churches, to that degree, we will also ensure that this gospel is passed down four generations like this verse and a hundred years from now like this verse. If nothing else, brothers and sisters, we're here from 45 nations and six continents as evidence that 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 works. We're here, right, because this gospel was entrusted to faithful men who passed it on and down through the generations till it found its way to us. And to the degree we give ourselves to 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, it will continue to remain a 100 years from now as well. In fact, for us as a network, if our core, core call is to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches, it necessitates that we train men who train men who train men. To the degree that we give ourselves to 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, we'll see our call realized. This is the call, to see the gospel spread out and passed down. What will it take? What's the power for seeing the gospel spread out and passed down? He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Every time that I read this, every time I thought about it, every time that I thought to communicate it, I figured what this verse is doing is pointing out Timothy's need for grace. And that's obvious and true. Or that it's pointing out his inability to do what God's called him to do apart from grace. That's obvious and true. And yet, as I thought about it some more and and considered it again, I think that's sort of, you might say, putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable right? You can still make it out, but there's something to putting the right emphasis on the right syllable. And so I think here, the emphasis isn't so much on Timothy's inability. It's not even his unableness to do it without grace, because I don't think the emphasis is on Timothy at all. The emphasis of this verse is on Christ Jesus and the strengthening grace that is available to him through Christ Jesus. You see, the point is not to say that apart from grace, Timothy can't do this. It's to flip it and say, through the empowering grace that is in Christ Jesus, you can do this, Timothy. Through the empowering grace that is available to Timothy, he can do what God has called him to do. You see, a timid man who's ready to throw in the towel doesn't need yet another reminder that he's weak. 
He needs to be called and challenged. Be strong. Be strong. You be strong. And the, the word there is ongoing and continual, meaning it won't be one big gulp of grace any more than one big meal. It'll be a constant, continuous dependency on the strengthening grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And to that degree, wherever he's been called, and to whomever he's been called, and whenever he's been called, God will supply the infinitely needed grace to help him do what God has called him to do. Hear that again. And don't let it fly over. Take the second to believe it. You have not been called to anything that the grace of Jesus Christ can't strengthen you to do it. You haven't been called to anywhere that the grace of Jesus Christ can't keep you. The grace of Jesus Christ is strong enough and sufficient enough to keep you and have you do exactly what he's called you to do. He's the kind of God that supplies that kind of grace. I'll give you an example. I was reading just devotionally through 2 Corinthians. And I stumbled on this verse that I didn't even know was in my Bible. I've read 2 Corinthians before. It's in chapter 9. It's in the context of giving and generosity. And to the one who seeks to be generous and wants to give, God makes this promise. It says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You should think of that with me for a second. I mean, how, how big is the infinite God? It's his size and scope you can't even talk about in ways that make sense. And what does it mean when God, infinite God, is ready to pour out on you all grace? How big is the size and scope of all grace when God's the one talking about it? Like if I said, I'll give you all my strength, you could see its puny parameters. But what would it be like for God to say, I am ready to pour out all grace on you? And all grace in such a way that you will have all sufficiency. What does that mean? In all things, how comprehensive and wide is that? At all times, so that you may abound in every good work. If that's the kind of grace that is available to the tither in your church, what kind of grace is available to you, brother and sister, to do what God's called you to do? Or do you imagine that he will pour out that kind of grace on the man or woman that wants to give generously and then be stingy with the grace that's needed for you to do what he's called you to do? Will God ever shortchange us or be stingy with us? I'll give you an example. When I was a kid... I wasn't the brightest of kids, okay? So I had this school fair when I was in grade school. And for two days, this outside company would come, and they'd set up shop in the auditorium. And they'd let these greedy grade school kids just run wild. It's like Christmas exploded in the auditorium. Every gadget, every gizmo, every toy or trinket you could possibly wear. And so the first day, they let us into the auditorium. Everyone's going here, there, and everywhere. And I remember across the room seeing, there it was, This bright red shiny gumball machine, all right? I'm in grade school. Someone who loves sweets as much as I do, it was perfect. It was like light fell from heaven. The angels sang. I levitated over to this thing, and there it was. And I looked down, and it said 75 cents. Now, I was smart enough to know what 75 cents is. 75 cents is three quarters this big. So I went home that day, and I made my appeal to my parents why I needed 75 cents, three quarters this big. Now, here's the thing. I'm Indian, which means I have Indian parents. Indian parents don't buy no gumball machines, right? (laughs) 
at least mine, my cheap, stingy Indian parents, there was no way they were ever going to give me 75 cents, right? I mean, my toys growing up was the World Book Encyclopedia, volumes 1 to 26. (laughs) If I was bored, dad would say, go read the encyclopedia. That's why we bought that for you, right? So there was no way I was going to pry open their hands and, and get 75 cents. So the next day, it's the school fair. There it is. All the kids go in again. There it is across the room. I've got my lunch bag in my hand, and I go over to this thing, and I reach in, and I'm just hoping beyond hope that I'll be able to pull it out. And I reach in, and I pull it out, and I'm so disappointed. And I go home with a dollar bill in my hand. Remember, I'm not a very bright kid. I go home with a dollar bill in my hand, and I said, I needed 75 cents, and you wouldn't even give it to me, because I know what 75 cents is. I've blacked out that day because I'm pretty sure I got lovingly disciplined after that. (laughs) And I'm sure at one point my mom must have come and said to me, you foolish boy, your father has given you more than what you asked for, more than what you ever needed, like he always does. I was a dumb grade school kid, but can I tell you all these years later, I still throw my puny fist to the heavens And imagine that this God is holding out on me. And this to the God who has literally stretched out his son and hung him naked on a cross till he literally had nothing left to give us. And will the God who stretched out his son hold back from us any of the grace that we need to do what he's called us to do? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, Timothy. Be strong because God's grace is strong enough and sufficient enough to have you do what he's called you to do. That's the power for gospel ministry. And we need that power because here's what gospel ministry looks like. He gives now three portraits, a painting together, a composite picture of what gospel ministry is. He says it's like a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. A soldier, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier, remember, back in chapter 1, he has already said, like we heard from Steve yesterday, the pivotal verse of the chapter in the book, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of self-control. Not fear, not cowardice. The word there is sort of like, not one who tucks tail and runs from the battle. Well, who's the opposite of someone who runs from the battle, but someone who runs towards the battle? And who on earth runs to the battle? Who on earth runs towards enemy lines? Who on earth runs towards gunfire and danger? Soldiers do. A good soldier doesn't seek to shirk from suffering or evade hardship. He shares in it because he knows it's part and parcel of the call. So it is for us, Timothy. This is gospel ministry. It's voluntarily putting a bullseye on your chest and knowing from this moment on bullets will be whizzing by your head and you will never again lose an enemy that is always seeking to take you down. That's gospel ministry. We don't don't run from that. We share in that. And as soldiers, remember, Timothy, that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim, and listen to this, is to please the one who enlisted him. If there's, if, if, if we take a moment here, there is grace in this sentence for us to be strengthened by. We don't get distracted. We have this singular pursuit of pleasing the one who enlisted us. 
Hang in that for a second, because there's grace to be strengthened by, that if we'll let it, can take our breath away. Yes, you are in this fight, and I am with you. And yes, bullets are whizzing by our head. And yes, there's an enemy that won't stop attacking us or accusing us. And yes, there's suffering and there's hardship. But you're in this fight because you have been enlisted by Jesus. Hear that again. You. You're in this room because you got enlisted by Jesus. You. Not even just the worthy neighbor next to you who you can understand. Or the leader in front of you who you can make sense of. You are here. Because you have been personally, not in a a lottery draft and randomly selected. And Jesus kind of bummed that your number got chosen. He chose you. You have been enlisted by Jesus Christ. And when you get that, doesn't the first question that bubbles out from your mouth go, why? Because you wouldn't have chosen you, and I wouldn't have chosen me. Why would Jesus Christ have chosen us? Please, the one who enlisted you. The best thing that I have ever heard on this is something that Charles Spurgeon said as he reflected on his own call to ministry. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He says, I have always felt in my own mind that it was one of the clearest proofs that I had God's forgiveness of my many sins when I was trusted to preach the gospel. I should think that if a prodigal came back to his father, the old gentleman would kiss him and receive him and rejoice greatly over him. But the next Saturday, the market day, the old gentleman would say, I cannot send young William to market. That would be putting temptation in his way. Here, John, you have always been with me. Go to market and buy and sell for me, for all that I have is thine. William, you stay at home with me. He might not let him see all that he meant, but he would say to himself, Dear boy, he is hardly fit for that great trust. I love him, but I still hardly trust him as much as that. And then listen to this. But see what my Lord did with me. When I came home to him as a poor prodigal, he said, Here is my gospel. I will entrust you with it. Go and preach it. If Spurgeon's right, and he is, he's saying it's one thing for the Lord to have forgiven us of our sins. And he should have rightly just beamed us up home then. But it's another that he would have left us here and then entrusted us with the most precious thing he has, even the gospel of his own son, and called us to preach it. Paul's saying, Timothy, I know you can't see this right now, but on the other side of this fog, there's a reality. You have been entrusted and enlisted by Jesus Christ. Don't quit. Don't bail. Because you've been called to this work. It's not only a soldier, he says, and an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Scholars say that probably what Paul had in mind was likely the 10 months of training that he had to do, an athlete did, before he could compete in the games. Couldn't shortcut that. Couldn't skip out on it. You had to oath that you trained for 10 months. So the the point here would be while everyone else is in bed... The athlete is in the gym. While everyone else is finishing another pint of Ben and Jerry, the athlete is eating avocado ice cream with Tom Brady, right? Why? Why would anyone eat avocado ice cream, right? Because there's a crown in view. And to get that crown, if it means discipline, then discipline. To get that crown, if it means self-control, then self-control. If it means we can't cut corners or take shortcuts or keep the rules, then so be it. That's the call, and so it is for us, Timothy, Paul's saying. And so it is for us, brother and sister, persevere. Endure the hardships that others don't have to endure. 
Why? Because soon enough you and I will be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and not only for me, but all those who have loved his appearing. But not only a soldier or an athlete, he says a farmer as well. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. A farmer as well. When I think of this, I'm reminded of a, a Super Bowl commercial. Some years ago, there was this Super Bowl commercial about Dodge Ram trucks. And it praised farmers in it. And in this baritone voice came this man named Paul Harvey. And he had this text behind this commercial. I'll read you some of the text of this commercial. Here's what it said. It said, and on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, and then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die. Then dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of haywire, feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon, then painting from tractor back, put in another 72 hours so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to tame lambs and wean pigs, somebody to weed, seed, feed, breed, and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and finish a hard week's work so God made a farmer. Now, I don't even know half of that means. (laughs) But I remember when I heard it going, I want to be a farmer, right? (laughs) Right? Because there's something heroic to the thing, right? It's almost like whoever aspires to the office of farmer aspires to a noble thing. Because you hear this and you go, this is worthy. Hard, but worthy. Timothy, farming is hard work. So it is. That's that's by design and, and default that farming is hard work. That's the thing. Whatever all that paragraph meant, you got across. This is hard. Meaning before the sun is up, the farmer's up. And long after it goes down, the farmer only goes down. And he doesn't wait for a burst of inspiration on Monday morning to go to work. Because there's always work to do. There's fields to plow and seed to sow. There's always labor. But here's the thing. All that work is done with no immediate results. With nothing immediately to show for any of it. In fact, not even any guarantee that all that labor will amount to anything. You'll plant before the winters come, hoping that it'll spring up in spring. All this work is hidden and unnoticed with no immediate results. So it is for us, Timothy. So it is in gospel ministry. It's hidden work. It's unnoticed work. It's hard work. It's humble work. It's tears and sweat and labor. And you have no idea if that dinner with your neighbor amounts to anything. You have no idea if that conversation with that girl will do anything. You have no idea if that sermon lands in the heart of that teenager on the third row. But you labor. And you labor with the hope that soon enough you'll be able to look over your shoulder when it's all done and see a harvest behind you. Paul's screaming, son, you can't see, but on the other side of this fog, there's a harvest for our work. See, we haven't teased out all that can be said from these three metaphors, which is why Paul says... Think over these things, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. While there's more to be drawn out, one thing we can say as we composite these pictures together, as they have in common, is 
this calling is incredibly hard. It's like the hard work of a farmer. It's like the hard work of a soldier. It's like the hard work of an athlete. It's hard. By default and design, it's hard. And Timothy, if it is so for the vocations of men, what do you imagine it will be for the minister of God? Our calling is hard, but there's strengthening grace to do it. That's what it takes. That's what it looks like. What's it all for? That's the last one and we'll be done. What is this all for? What's the purpose of gospel ministry? Why share in suffering like a good soldier? Why endure like an athlete? Why, why work hard like a farmer? And the simple answer, brothers and sisters, is because this is all going somewhere. All this labor is going somewhere. Remember Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember, he, he's the offspring of David, meaning the Messiah, the one we all waited for. And how did we all think he was coming? Like this conquering king. But how did he come? Like, like one embracing hard. Like a suffering soldier. One acquainted with sorrows, familiar with grief, hardship, suffering, death was his lot. But, but note the right emphasis on the right syllable. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This is the risen one. Remember Jesus Christ. He didn't stay dead, did he? Because all of this is going somewhere, Timothy. All this labor will amount to something. You see, Timothy, on the other side of the suffering soldier is a victory. And on the other side of the enduring athlete is a crown. And on the other side of the hardworking farmer is a harvest. And on the other side of the cross is an empty grave. So it was for Jesus, so it will be for us. All of this is going somewhere. He did not stay dead, did he? Look at Jesus. And then he says, and look at me. For preaching this gospel, I'm in chains. But soon enough, soon enough, chapter 4, these chains will be exchanged for a crown. They will decapitate this head of mine. But such is the audacious hope of the Christian that this very decapitated head will wear a crown in glory. Because the shore is coming, Timothy. All of this is going somewhere. And even if I'm bound, God's word is not bound. You can't put it down. No matter what people have tried, no matter what history has tried, you can't put this thing down. It'll always spring up. The winter will give way to spring. And the sprouting will come. And therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is all going somewhere, Timothy. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that Paul is saying that his endurance is the means by which the elect will be saved. That his suffering matters to ensure that the elect are brought in. That's the means. I mean, if you think of that, that means that 10 billion years into glory, as the Father is praised for his election, and as the Son is praised for his death and resurrection, and as the Spirit is praised for his regeneration and sanctification and glorification, that at some point there will be men and women who come to you and say to you, I thank God for you because your endurance is why I'm here. You sticking it out is the means by which God's election in my life came to pass. There's grace in that. Be strengthened by it. 
Such is our call. And Timothy, if that's the way it was for Jesus, look at him. And if that's the way it is for me, look at me. And moreover, Timothy, that's the way it is for everyone. This isn't just Jesus or Paul or you, Timothy. This is it it for everyone. That's why the saying is trustworthy. You know the saying, Timothy. Because if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we, brothers and sisters, endure in a way that I don't even understand or know how to explain, we will reign with him. Two promises. And then to sober him to what's at stake, two warnings as well. But if we deny him, Timothy, if we deny him, not like we have a lapse, not even like we have a fall, Peter would tell us that there's still grace for those who deny. But if we deny in the kind of way that we've tasted the gospel and spit it out, and we're done and bail on Jesus, then didn't Jesus say, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we're faithless, now maybe it switches back again. And maybe it's a word of encouragement that even if we're not great, God will be great. And if so, amen to that. Or it's a couplet of promises and a couplet of warnings. If we're faithless, in the end found to be without faith, the way that Phygelus and Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, Demas in love with the present world deserting me, if we're like that, then in the end, if our name is also piled onto that stack of names, then he will be faithful. He won't shrug his shoulders at our unbelief. He won't sweep it under the rug. All the threats and warnings of this gospel will come upon us because he can't deny himself. See, that's what's at stake, Timothy. For you, for your hearers, this matters. This matters. And if it is so for Jesus, there's death then life, suffering, then glory. And if it is this way for me, there's uh, chains before a crown. And if this is the way for all of God's people, death, then life, endurance, then reigning, then Timothy, what do you imagine it'll be for you? And brother and sister, what do we imagine it'll be for us? I'll end by telling you this. Two months after Chadwick swam her failed swim, two months later she did it again. A day no less cold, no less foggy, waters no less icy or shark infested. Only this time she made it. And when they asked her, she said, this time, the entire time, I kept in my mind an image of the shore. And that's what Paul has been laboring to do. To show you the shore. And to say, brother and sister, don't quit. Don't bail on Jesus or the mission that he's given to you, this will be incredibly hard, but there's strengthening grace, and it's all worth it because you're almost there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that you've given us this word. We believe, help our unbelief. Help us believe that all of what is written in your word is true, that glory is soon and coming, and that in glory we will be freed, freed from all the things that haunt us and assault us now, free from opposition, free from suffering and hardship, free from satanic oppression, accusation, free from our own selves and sin. 
that it'll come, and it'll come soon with Jesus Christ. Help us believe. And because of that, let this day, as a part of this week, be a part of the means by which the people in this room endure to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.